I once had a friend who... No, uh, you did? I did. I did. <laughs> no longer. I no longer have friends. But we went down for, I believe, it was like my 27th or 26th birthday or something. And he went down to play roulette and we were just fucking around. We we're all broke, you know? It wasn't mm-hmm. like we're fucking big timing down in Atlantic City. It's just literally about playing long enough to get some free drinks brought to you, you know? And my buddy, little Mike, he wears this, this lucky ring he has from home. He goes on a little run to roulette table. He goes from like a hundred bucks to six, $700. He's really, really cranking away and decides, you know what? I'm going to throw a couple of these hundred dollar, hundred dollar chips on some numbers. And within two spins, he hits. So a hundred dollar chip, on a number is 35 to one odds. It pays out 3,500. Wow. So Mike hits. We're like, holy shit. That's like more money than any of us have ever seen. And within eight spins, he does it again. No way. Yeah. Swear to you. And literally he was sitting there holding like eight grand or something like that off a hundred bucks. And uh, we're like, whoa, the lucky ring. And, you know, (laughs) and then he starts, you know, Drops, I think, you know, he's, he's still going heavy. Drops down to like six grand. We're like, bro, like, come get on. Out. This is more money than you know. You gotta like, get out. Like, you gotta get out. <laughs> so he gets out. He actually was smart. Took it. Uh, he did one of the most baller things. The, mor- the morning after we're leaving Atlantic City, we stop at a Denny's. And it was like a $14 bill. And he drops 100 on the table. I'm like... <laughs> baller like that's what you do with that money and then i think he ended up taking some of the revenues and starting a devil dance records which actually put out a bunch of uh my music over the years sick that's a good use of it so roulette does pay out sometimes brad it's funny okay so it's a funny coincidence because i was with an old friend of mine last week who told me a story that i hadn't previously heard which was backed up by another friend who was there who okay. was with him, that they were in Vegas and ate a bunch of mushrooms. Uh-huh. And Good like, start. we're like, let's get out of the hotel room. Let's just get 200 bucks and see what happens in the casino. <laughs> and we'll stick with 200. Like, because yeah. one of them didn't want to go. He's like, no, let's just take, we'll get 200. So he talked to the other guy into going. They go down and he said that they went, they played roulette and he said that like numbers would flash at him. Oh, and he would play them, and he worked his like two hundred bucks up to like eighteen hundred dollars. Look at that fantastic fun like, guy! Immediately though, like immediately, like yeah. And then I think they took the money and like, I think they got. I think they were smart enough to get out of there. I think they started to lose a little bit, and he was like, "Let's go." Yeah, that's when you got to be out. That's when you got to be out. I always do the same thing though. My my wife seen it. A couple of my friends seen it. I don't. Like, I don't ever go to those places, Vegas or AC, with, like, money I care about. And if it's money I care about, I don't gamble, you know? Like, I grew up broke. Like, I can't fuck around with that stuff. Like, I got rent to pay. I got to keep my car in the road. Like, I can't go to zero. But if I make a little money, I always, always, always drop it on black before I leave the casino. Oh, yeah. I think you too. I think I've heard that. Every time. If it's 200, 400, 50 bucks, doesn't matter. It goes on black and I either go double or nothing on my way out. I don't know if it's smart. I think it's kind of baller, 
I'd say I'm at like probably a 60, 70% success clip. So, you know, I'm going to keep good, it going. It's a good way to do it. It's a good way to do it. I want to, you know, I bet I don't, I didn't ask the question, but I bet Jack Curry doesn't gamble. <laughs> he doesn't seem like the gambling type to me. No, He's maybe too smart. poker. It's too smart. Maybe some poker. Smart I mean, guys play poker, you know. I know. A guy like that, you know, like, because he, he could probably get invited to these great games, you know, like like Derek Jeter's like card game that he ha- hosted his home or something, you know. Uh, so so maybe he does. I would he, love to know the answer. Well, he does. He seems sensible enough not to play like casino Roulette. games. Yeah. <laughs> or, any, or casino games. Like, yeah, he, I, he, I could see him maybe playing a card game, but. I mean, not grew up casino in, games. Yeah, he grew up in Jersey City in the He's, '60s. I'm sure he knows his way around some cards. He seems but, pretty focused for, uh, yeah, exactly for a slot Very. machine. So, did I, I? I don't think I've ever told you the funny story about how I met Jack Curry. No, um, as you know, you've learned through this podcast. I am a eager and voracious uh, Yankees fan, and. Um, Somewhere during, I, I actually just corroborated this story uh, prior to getting on, so I didn't, um, you know, mess up the deets. And somewhere around the, the end of 2012 or 2013, we were wrapping up the shows for, I believe, handwritten, and we did a, a show at Webster Hall in New York. And I'm pretty sure we were either just going on or just getting off and our monitor guy who we were bringing around a guy named Anthony Shushtak, who we call Marvin <laughs> uh, because of how much he looks like uh, Daniel Stern from home alone, Marv, <laughs> Marv. Um, so him and our sound guy were known as the wet bandits. And uh, he, he takes me uh, aside after the show. He's like, yo, my sister's in the crowd and sent a screenshot of Jack Curry tweeting about the show. Oh. So he was he was at the Gaslight show. Right. And Anthony, you know, Marvin tells me this and I'm like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa. Jack Curry's here? <laughs> he likes Gaslight? Get the <laughs> fuck out of here." And I'm so excited, you know, like really worked up. And what's the first thing I do when I get off stage? Download Twitter. <laughs> I didn't even have one yet. <laughs> And this is this was the domino to lead me to get Twitter uh, was to try to connect. So I literally first thing I do, I get Twitter, and the first thing I do is find Jack Curry's message, answer him, friend him, start talking to him, and uh, that's how we met. And over the years, you know, we've hung out a number of times now. You know, at shows and even even socially, I've I've grown really really fond of. Uh, Jack is a guy, just proper, stand-up, decent um, kind of person, but also really not limited to sports. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to have him on is got this uh, sort of breadth of knowledge over a lot of different things. And what's interesting is, you know, what do we, we, what do we end up talking about on this show? Like half the time is sort of like, what drives artists, right? Mm. Like the psychology of like what drives a great artist, what keeps a great band together, what does all these things. And someone in his position has basically been, you know, watching the same exact thing play out just in a different arena this entire time, you know? 
you're right. you're you're staring at greatness. You're staring at people who are on the edge of insanity to be great, and then covering them and talking about them. And there's a lot of similarities, you know. Um, True. Yeah, and we got into that a lot in this interview. Just the uh, what these people are like, what drives them, what's the best way to get a kid from A to B. It's really it's really a lot of fun, and we went down a lot of different avenues on this one. Brad, I'm sorry you couldn't join us. Yes, I am too. Very busy. But you got anything to say for yourself before we get into this? Or? I, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> it sounded really sincere. I'm almost crying. I'm almost crying. Uh, there's no excuse for my behavior. There's no excuse. Get the <laughs> fuck out of here. So let's get into the meat of it. Let's, let's listen to this great interview with Jack Curry. We made it on. Thanks for coming. I appreciate it. This is going to be oh, of fun. Of course. Absolutely. Looking, I've been looking forward to it. Yeah. So how's your day? What's going on? What's a Jack Curry, what's a Jack Curry morning like? This is, a, this is really, this sparked my interest because, you know, I, I've obviously been reflecting on you a lot in the last couple of days, getting ready for this. I'm like, Jack's, you know, it's a very vibrant guy. Like we've known each other a while. You're always very vibrant, always very positive. Uh, you know, I've never ran into you somewhere and you're just like, yeah, I'm doing all right, Benny. Like, fuck it. You know, like, <laughs> like you always got a, a quality vibe. So anytime I run into someone like that, uh, you know, since I cannot maintain that sort of vibe all the time, I, I want to know what are these healthy choices you're making in, in the morning? Like, What's your ritual like when you're getting out of bed and getting into a day? It's kind of funny that you described me that way because my my wife of 29 years, Pamela, would tell you that I am a slow mover in the morning. I usually have <laughs> to have two cups of tea to, to be able to have a an authentic conversation. Okay. I'm a night owl, Benny. I, going back to high school and college, I was always a guy who wanted to stay up late, wanted to watch TV, watch whatever sports were on, Letterman devotee. So that has carried on into this life. So I knew I would never be a nine to five guy. So, I mean, I go to bed, especially after a post game, two, two thirty in the morning, Okay, probably sleep till about nine 30 or 10, which a lot of people would say, you got to be kidding me. But remember what time I'm going to bed that late. Yeah. I do like to run. I try and run four or five days a week. Maybe that's the healthy part of it that you're talking about. Sure. And I really enjoy what I do. I, I really enjoy the, the, the my family and the people around me, not to get hokey, but I, I think there's a, there's a reason to smile every day. And if that passed on to you and you saw that in me or have seen that in me, I actually take that as a compliment because yeah, you should. I... I I enjoy waking up every day and knowing that there's a challenge ahead work-wise and, and the fact that I get to talk about baseball and in a previous incarnation got sure. to write about baseball. That's, that's something to celebrate every day. Yeah, 100%. You get to pay it forward. Now, on the physical, so you drink tea. You don't drink coffee. Not coffee. What do, you do for, what do you do for food? I try to eat oatmeal in the morning. I try to eat some oatmeal and fruit. Nice Sometimes I will vary that with some some eggs. I I do. I'm gonna I'm not gonna lie to you. I, I do love sweets, like danishes and donuts uh-huh. and stuff like that. But I try to I try to I try to even that out with the running. So if there's a chocolate chip muffin calling my name, I try and make sure I, I run a little bit more that day. Yeah. Uh, 
the running balances things out for me because not even just from a from a health perspective, but I can't tell you how many ideas I get from right. just going out and going on a run. And yeah, even I was if it's a, ask that. yeah, yeah, half an hour it might be a half an hour. And I don't, I keep it pretty simple. I, I just run around my neighborhood. I could tell you from my house, the one, two, three, four, and five mile distance markers. So I know in any given <laughs> right. day how far I'm going and how far it takes to get back. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, sometimes, you know, you know, when you're an aging rock and roll person like me, I always make the joke, you, you have two directions you can go. You can either go to the way of Lemmy or you can go the way of Sting. You know, you can either choose really, really lean into the Valhalla of decadence and just take <laughs> your life that way and just, you know, throw the, you know, the cards into the clouds. Or you can become Sting. You can go inward. You can focus. You can have sex for nine hours and, and meditate and do things like that. <laughs> but but there's like no middle class. You can't just be like, ah, I'm mowing my lawn and doing this because then you'll go crazy. Um, <laughs> but something I see from that is... Uh, a lot of it just comes down to an everyday practice, you know, um, maybe the same reason why religious people pray, why, you know, some people meditate. Um, do you find the running uh, as that sort of outlet, like a meditative kind of outlet? Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up. I was always a, not always, I turned 30, Benny, and you're saying you're an aging rock and roller. That makes me laugh. <laughs> I, I turned 30 and my wife had a birthday party for me. And of course, that's 20 something, 26 years ago. So mm-hmm. people weren't taking pictures on their phones. And when, when the pictures right. came back, I didn't like the way I looked. I said, I'm too heavy. I got to start running. Oh, okay. So since I've been 30, I decided to become a runner um, shortly before my 40th birthday um, my mom had passed away mm-hmm. and I decided that I was going to run a marathon in her honor. Oh, and what okay. I did was every time I trained, not that I didn't think about my mother every minute of every day anyway, but every time I trained, that was, that was my time with her. And that was oh, my time wow. to talk to her and pray to her. Cause my mother was a very prayerful person, a very faithful person. She passed that on to me. And so when you talk about the the, the mix there, the, there's absolutely something there for me that, that are carried over. And kind of a, a funny element to the story, my, my mom's nickname was Chief. My Whoa. father always used to say she was the one in charge. She <laughs> was the that. chief. Yeah. So I ran the New York City Marathon with, with Chief on my, my T-shirt <laughs> or my Nike dry fit. <laughs> well, awesome. what do you think everybody thought? They thought I was a police chief or, or a... Uh, uh, Robert or a Parrish fire. fan. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. But it still made me smile every time people were yelling, you got it, Chief. Keep running, Chief. Yeah, so that's it, was awesome. a, it was a constant reminder of, uh, of her and, and of the sacrifices she made along the way for me and my brother and our family. So sure. that... That that is why I will always run and I will always find some solitude in doing that. I like how at thirty it kind of started as a a practice of vanity, you know. But but give it a decade of practice and put these real things into the mix, and it you know becomes something else altogether. Right? 
100%. If you had told me, I grew up in high school, I played basketball and baseball, and that's the kind of athlete, if you want to put it in quotes, that I was. And when they made you run laps, one lap around the field <laughs> right. before varsity baseball practice, I would be saying, are you kidding me? Yeah, yeah. If you had told me as a teenager that I would someday run a couple of marathons, I would I would have said that you were nuts, especially since my brother, Rob, who you've met, yeah. he was the runner in the family. Oh. He was actually an all-county runner in high school. And okay. I kind of... I kind of stole his thunder there and ran a couple of marathons. That's pretty funny. You know, my style in high school, I remember in order to pass gym class, you had to run a 12 minute mile, <laughs> which, you know, should be pretty doable. I'm in my giant skateboard pants. You know, I probably ate, you know, McDonald's egg and cheese biscuits on the way to school, real slovenly in those days, you know? And I would literally like, I would time every lap to be like, I'm doing one lap at two minutes and 55 seconds. And I would come in like at like 1155 for the whole mile, barely breaking the sweat. <laughs> Gym teachers, they hated me. Um, you were you were pushing the envelope there. You you could you could probably walk run a 12 minute mile. So you, you were definitely pushing the envelope. There. Yeah. Yeah. Not exactly peak peak physical fitness. I mean, I wish, you know, it's a whole nother story, but. I wish I had found some version. It's where uh, I do. I don't wish I took sports more seriously because then I wouldn't have taken music as seriously. But the physical aspect of playing music is something I didn't pick up on until probably like my 30s when it became super demanding, you know. And I do kind of wish I like equated those things together uh, more than I did younger because I think I would have been a better a better player. What's the most, uh, I mean, I know you guys have played, you have played in, in some, uh, I'm sure, some humid venues. <laughs> yeah. what, what would you say is the most weight you've ever lost during a gig? I mean, there's got to be a ton of uh, water weight that you lose by playing yeah. some nights. Well, I mean, the one that comes to mind is I remember an early Against Me tour. We played, I believe the venue is called Jack Rabbits in Jacksonville, Florida. It ended up being a wild night because Laura Jane Grace got into a fight with a bunch of anarchist punks at a bookstore before the show and it just got kind of wild i remember that show being so hot that um because they were using uh tube amps and hollow body guitars everything was getting so moist it was all popping out and it was so wet inside of the venue that you couldn't even keep uh, a guitar rig on um that was probably the singular hottest i remember but you know, when Gaslight started getting into those, you know, 25 song, two hour type sets, I think that's really when I started to demand like a different level of fitness and discipline out of myself, you know, because you can play that show and be fine. But by the following day, if you want to do it the same way, that's where something comes into play. You know, um, if you want to do that, 30 nights out of 35 nights, you need to really build up your endurance and your, and your um, certain disciplines before you even leave. And if you don't, then the, uh, you know, second show is much worse than the 20th show, which to me is, is totally unfair. You know, I totally could see that. And I totally understand that. And I, I would think that there was probably a legion of musicians who didn't understand yeah. along the way exactly what you just said. Yeah. That this is this is going to get taxing on your body. Exactly. 
Yeah, I wish I wish there was, you know, uh, there's no AAU for drums, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no scout was like, hey, do you want to do this when you're 29 and make the Hall of Fame? This is going to be the way you got to go. My model was Lemmy. It was there treat you yourself like shit, do some cocaine, drink, and then you just won't feel it, you know? That's, <laughs> that's the trick. But I want to go back to some, I wanted to talk about, you know, how you came up anyway, you know, old school Jersey City. Um, and, you know, to top off the narrative, I had no idea your mom went around this, someone named Chief. Yes. You know, yes, um, yes. so, so what, what was the, uh, the actual childlike household like, um, you know, pretty, pretty firm? Like, like, what, what, what was, what was life like for you as a kid? Very, very, yeah, definitely strict. My my mother was the taskmaster. My dad was more of uh, in the background, but you didn't want to tick him off either. And I have an older brother, Rob, as I mentioned, he's a couple years older than me. And it was a church-going, strict, loving, sports-oriented household. Uh, mm-hmm. My brother and I loved sports, and that was from an early age. And my parents fostered that. Okay. And because of the fact that it turned in my to, to my career, I'm, I'm very appreciative of that. I can to this day remember my mother attending every minor league, little league, Babe Ruth high school game I ever played. And Benny, not just attending, but making her presence felt. I, I actually remember okay. once in little league, I was pitching, and you I knew said, when Chief was in the stands. <laughs> yes. huh? Yeah, so you can't yell on every pitch. I. I, I <laughs> I appreciate that you're rooting, but I, I hear your voice on every pitch. And I didn't pitch much. I think I pitched two or three games. I was, sure, I was sure. an in, infielder. But my, my parents and my brother would say the same thing, and I, and I very much appreciate this. First of all, they were very, they were very blue collar. They were hard workers. My, my mom was a waitress. Okay. My dad was a truck driver and a mechanic. And then later on in life, he had his own business. But they allowed us to dream and they allowed us to believe that we could chase down whatever goals we wanted to. There was never any limitations. There was always a belief that, sure, you could do that. And you're going to have to work hard to do that. And I, I very much appreciate that, that support. And I, I think about my, I lost my parents. They both were, they were already young. I mean, my mom died when she was 55. My dad yeah. died when he was 61. So it's been a while. I haven't yeah. talked to them in a quarter of a century, but they're, they're still with me. Their presence is still felt. And as I said, I think when they saw that I had a passion for sports, which blended with a passion for journalism, they were, they were immediate supporters, constant supporters. One funny story, Benny, you'll get a kick out of this. My mom loved the local newspaper, the Jersey journal. She Ah, thought that was the Little League scores, she knew all the names. Oh, so cool. I, in, I interned in the Jersey Journal for three summers. Right. I remember how excited my mother was. <laughs> well, then a year out of college, I got hired by the New York Times. Right, yeah. And I remember coming home after the interview and telling my mother that I got the job. And she had a very muted reaction. And I said, Mom, I'm going to be working for the New York Times and she said, um, I really liked it when you worked for the Jersey Journal. <laughs> that was her world. That yeah. was her world. She, yeah. she, she loved being able to, she called me Jackie. She loved being able to say, well, my Jackie is, is covering the Greenville American, Greenville South Little League game today. If you <laughs> right. want to read his story tomorrow. Her friends didn't read the New York Times. Which, right. Uh, yeah. Didn't <laughs> which make I it, understood. Didn't make it over the river then, right? No, exactly. Yeah. 
And but well, I, appreci- I appreciate you asking me that question because I think sometimes we we all get so caught up in, I've done a lot of these podcasts and obviously you and I are friends, so that that helps this. But I would much rather, much rather give an answer like that and get a chance for a minute to talk about my mother and my brother and my dad than give you a hot take on who the Yankees are going to move off their roster in a week or so. So I appreciate you asking that. Well, if I mean, you know, if I wanted to go get that, I could Google it, you know, and then I know I could also text you for insider information <laughs> if I need it. But no, I mean, yeah, like like that stuff is well-worn. And I think one of the interesting things I always find about sports, especially once you peel back the onion, is, you know, it's the same as music in the way that people can idolize people or think about people in a certain light. And once you peel back the onion, you know, everybody's got this core that comes from the same place. We were all fucking kids. You know, we all fell in love with something. We all had pain and we all wound up where we are. And it's interesting to see how people wind up there. And that's maybe give a little bit of a roadmap for for people coming up, you know. Um, my, my my wife, Pamela, and I always have this debate and she went to Marist College and majored in communications and mm-hmm. started out working for John Hancock Insurance and then found her niche and worked in sales and marketing for the company that makes Lysol and worked there for 27 years. But again, found her niche in her early 20s. And I always told her, I thought it was a tremendous advantage that by the time I was 13, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Mm. On the outskirts, I thought about being a baseball player, but I was honest enough to know that's a very hard road to go down. You should pursue sports journalism. And whenever I talk to kids, I always say, try and figure out what you want to do at a young age. And she says to me, well, that's not fair to everybody. I said, I know it's not fair. And I'm not pushing you into a corner and say, you need to be an accountant. You need to be a lawyer. You need to be a doctor. But my point is, when you have that knowledge at a young age, the, the, the path becomes a lot less cluttered. I, I had a singular focus from the time I was a teenager that I was going to be a sports journalist. And I remember going to Fordham, and I had a couple of roommates who some of them would, uh, would rag on me and tease me because there I was reading Sports Illustrated and Sporting News like it was the Bible. Right, and, right. <laughs> okay, that's fine. You, you do your thing, I'll do mine. But I, I, I know... I knew my path and I knew where I wanted that path to go. Yeah. It's interesting you bring that up because I I speak about this with my wife all the time. Um, I mean, one of the things that Kobe Bryant left behind for me was I'm still am highly motivated by the stories of Kobe's work ethic. Mm. You know, like, like I hear these stories, I hear stories about his failures and coming out after a game and, shooting 200 shots when the arena is dark and, and the things that gave him this next level of uh, competency at what he does. And again, somebody who is so singularly focused, just like I was too. I mean, I knew I wanted to be some type of, you know, not necessarily a drummer maybe, but in the professional music world somehow when I was that age. And and you see this in sports, I'm sure, all the time when uh, certain athletes are given that singular focus at a really young age. It can create Kobe Bryant, right? It can create someone who is so singularly great at one thing. But then the one thing I go back to that I, I try to slow back is like, are these people happy 
were they happy doing it? Were they happy getting there? Or is this singular obsession so great and so heavy that they can't even enjoy the journey, you know? Um, And that's where, like, having kids now, you know, I I respect the idea that I'm like, yo, if I get my son on a kit, seven years old, and really get him going, and he's, you know, like, like he could be, he's better than me by 12. You could track the whole thing, you know, and and he'd be there. But, like, I... I, um, I try to fit in that balance, you know, like, like how much, uh, upside is there to a broad education, to giving people a lot and letting them decide. Um, and there's even some truth to that in sports, right? Like the, uh, like a Shohei Otani who's, you know, uses his body in a, in various different ways over so many years and can somehow seem to stay healthy taking on the thing he does. And, you know, the lefty specialist who, was throwing 101 miles an hour with the same arm over and over again for a few years needs Tommy John, you know? I, I, I have an answer for you, or at least I have a, a, an opinion. Okay. I, I think Kobe was happy. I, I think that that singular focus and that singular obsession is what made him happy. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know Kobe Bryant at all. I'm obviously a baseball reporter, never, never met him, never interviewed him. But my parallel would be Jeter, and it's interesting. I just interviewed Jeter last week for uh, about the Hall of Fame for a show that we're going to air in September, I think on September 3rd, so I'll give a little plug here. I asked him the identical question that you just referenced because toward the end of his career, I'm sure you probably remember this, his father said to him, you have to remember to enjoy the journey. And he felt that if he had one thing, not a criticism, but one observation of Derek's career – that he was so focused that he didn't enjoy the journey. Mm. So I asked Jeter, if you had stopped to smell the roses, would you have been as intense? Would you have been as passionate? Would you have been as successful? And he said, that's a great question, and I'll never know the answer because right. I, only knew, I only knew one way. Right. Yeah, I, I wasn't going to stop on August 15th because the Yankees had won eight games in a row and he had been hitting 380 in the month and – I'm not going to go to the ballpark early. Uh, I'm going to uh, I'm going to have lunch with my three friends today. No, right. that's no, not never. who he was. Yeah, never. I'm going to get there. I'm going to do my work. I'm going to take my ground ball. So, I, I think when you love it that much, I think the enjoyment can come afterwards. Uh, I, mm. I think you can take a take a seat after the fact and be able to say, "Man, man, what a career and and what an accomplishment." Or or in the off season, you can slow down a little in the sure, off season. Sure, sure. I, it is possible. I mean, I've even been asked that question in interviews for people, you know, and I hate the idea of like, oh, I'm 40 now. So in my self-righteous wisdom, I will tell other kids like what to do. You know, it, it kind of makes me feel a little strange to begin with. But one thing I do remember, like Gaslight, at least, was a very, um, let's say like like after a great show you weren't coming into a gaslight backstage and people were like high-fiving and like getting really excited. The backstage would look the same if we had a great show or a bad show. Um, And there was sort of this, uh, we were never impressed with things. So we would finish a record, be like, okay, this record's done. Sounds good. Like what's next? How are we going to make the next one better than this? How are we going to play on it live? And I think the one thing I wish I could tell some version of myself the same way a Jeter is like, 
keep your eyes down a little more and less forward. You know what I mean? Like, like try to actually realize the specialness of what's happening in the moment and not just be hyper-focused on how to keep it rolling. But like you said, on the same token, I have no idea if like the body of work and the quality would be that level if that was part of it. You know, that's the chicken or the egg, right? It's it's a great question, and and I know you well enough to know that that you're a humble guy, and I think humility goes a long way in whatever business you're in, and it doesn't mean you can't enjoy your successes, but I don't think anyone wants to see someone who who gloats and who brags and who boasts. It's it's yeah, it's okay to be happy with your success, but I, I think humility is a trait that we we all should have an abundance of, not not an absence of totally only if you're like Shaq, you know, if it's like, <laughs> if it's like your shtick, then I'll accept it. I'll allow or, it. Or if you're a, a professional wrestler and, and it's part of the shtick, <laughs> right, right. And you, right. Have, you have to do the pre, the pre uh, match interviews and scream and yell and all that. I think that's becoming part of it now, you know, in the social media age, I think, uh, you know, for a bat, like a Joel Embiid or somebody like that, they realize that, uh, they're a heel. They're just like professional wrestlers. And I think half the time they tweet and get out there, it's for the same exact reasons as it used to be, you know? I, I, think, I think you hit on a great point. I, I obviously don't want to date myself, but I've been covering baseball in New York for 30 years. And social media has absolutely changed the way that, that we cover the sport, the way that you cover athletes. Uh, reporters used to be a conduit through which athletes could get a message out there. Right. If you're a pop, popular enough athlete these days, you don't need to deal with doing any interviews. You, you you can be your own spokesperson. You can get your message out there as quickly as you want to. And that's a that's a big change in the way all of our businesses uh, operate. Yeah, that was actually a line of questioning I had. So I might as well talk about it now. I mean, we talk a lot about the use of social media on this show. And a lot of the times it's, it's people, you know, uh, my age or older, um, trying to sort of figure out, should I be on TikTok? Is this bad for me if I'm not? <laughs> you know, um, there's 2 billion people on this thing. Like, how do I connect with 17-year-olds? It's on here. But should I be connecting with 17-year-olds because of my age and lack of uh, awareness for what's going on there? So, you know, for a baseball player or an athlete, what, what do you think's like the baseline to, to, you know, play ball, do the things you're supposed to do on social media. You know, I'm sure it creates a lot of opportunities, but what, what's, what, what do you think is a good balance for, for a young athlete coming in and having to now navigate that as well? It's interesting that you asked that, Benny. And first of all, I'll preface this by saying everyone's an individual. Make your own choices. This is sure. just my opinion. Sure, do, sure. do whatever you feel you want to do. But for instance, Brett Gardner, Never in a million years would that guy be on social media. <laughs> right, right. CC Sabathia, who's, who's only a couple of years younger, is great on social media. He's mm -hmm. got his own podcast with Ryan Rucco. He's constantly filling up his Instagram feed. He's playing golf with this person. He's lifting weights with that person. He, I think he was recently out in California because his son was playing in a, uh, a perfect game tournament. So I think there are ways to utilize it that can, that can help you and help you build your brand if that's important to you. I will tell you, 
five years ago, probably about five years ago, the Yankees do media training with their their players, their younger players. Mm-hmm. And their PR person, Jason Zillow, who I've known for years, asked me if I could talk to the players and answer some questions. I said, well, sure. Do I have to have a big prepared speech? He said, no, just give them your observations on covering players, what makes the relationship work, and maybe mm-hmm. they'll have some questions at the end. Well, in that conversation, <laughs> I did say to them, if I was a young athlete coming up, I would not get involved in social media. Oh, I, okay. I would think that I would be so focused on trying to make it as a player and all of that that entails that I wouldn't want that distraction. Hmm. Now, that was five years ago. Have things changed? They probably have because yeah. there's a way to do social media without making it your entire life and without having squabbles and fights with people. And that's my one, well, it's one of my criticisms of social media, Benny, is that I just I just crave for more civility. Yeah. It's just, yeah. it can be so crass at times. I, I'm, I used to engage with people on Twitter 90% of the time. If you sent me a note on Twitter, I, I almost treated it like an email. I felt it was my obligation to respond. Yes. That 90% number has deteriorated to about 10% because it's just, it's just not worth the hassle. It's yeah. just not worth dealing with that person's mood or, or that person's anger. So right. some of my tweets are Yankee pregame is on at six 30. See yeah, you there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no commentary, please. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now what about like in the same, in the same token, uh, you know, should it just go player for player? Like, is there just a mental health element where, you know, some people can handle it, some people can't? And and then I was wondering for you, you know, that's something that's obviously made a lot of headway in the last few years is athletes, um, you know, coming to terms with their with their mental health and being public about that stuff. I was wondering in all your years of uh, covering people, ha- had you ever had like, day-to-day interaction with someone you knew was sick and knew needed help, but like the world just didn't operate like that at that point? Benny, the answer is probably yes, but it, but the last part of your comment is is leads me to say I don't know. Uh, right. As you just said, it really wasn't accepted to maybe say you were having a bad week or a bad day or you were anxious and not feeling right. That was not something that that happened. And that very was why, because for an athlete, that was considered weakness, right? Of course, it was. Yeah. It was considered weakness. It was considered something that you would never bring up. So, as I think of some of the players I've covered over the years, sure, I'm sure there were some of them who were who were struggling and who had issues at home or had issues off the field that they felt they couldn't bring to the ballpark, but. That's a great question, and and when we're done later today, I'll probably think a little deeper on it and try to remember who I'm referring to. But I would think that along the way, there, of course, I mean, I covered dozens, if not hundreds, of players. There had to be someone who was who was struggling, but didn't have the ability or the strength to. I don't want to say strength. Didn't feel that it was the right thing at that time to to cry out for help. Yeah, yeah, probably felt less than strength. Probably just felt unsafe. I would assume at that point. No doubt. I, w- I mean, was Ricky Henderson actually talking to himself up there? <laughs> Who knows? Maybe there was another Ricky up there. We'll never know. 
You know who I think about just as we were talking about this, and yeah. it's a tra- it's a tragic story. But do you remember the reliever Steve Howe? Yes, of course. I mean, seven times suspended from baseball because of substance abuse, right. and clearly had to fight that addiction. Became a Yankee and was a very popular guy in that clubhouse. Was was a very interesting and combustible guy to cover. Hmm. He was one of these guys who you felt compelled to be around his locker because we we all want good quotes. We all want yeah, right. honesty. And Steve Howe was, was an honest athlete. He would tell you exactly what was going on in his mind at that moment. So I, I always... I always look at his story and, and, and feel terrible for him. He's not with us anymore, and he yeah. obviously struggled struggled a lot throughout his career. But when that when that guy was on, he was a extremely reliable reliever and, and and wasted a lot of his career. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I think like you know, I think back to a player like that, especially in the same eras. You know, you know, Gooden and what some of the Mets were up to at that time. It was almost like a joke to someone my age, the fact that, oh, Steve Howe, he got, you know, uh, kicked out for cocaine like X amount of times. Ha, 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 ha. But, you know, this day and age, it would be looked at in a different way. Like, what's wrong with this guy? Does he need something? Does he need help? Does he need support? So I guess that's that's a positive, you know? I, I think it is a positive. And I, I even go back to uh, the book I wrote with David Cohn, Full Count. We've got a chapter on his his days with the Mets and he talks right. and I'm not looking, I'm not looking to throw Dwight Gooden and Daryl Strawberry under the bus. I've covered both of them and I like both of them very much, but David talks about some of the demons that, that enveloped them in their careers. And to your point and what you're asking about, I'm sure if teams had the people in place that they have now, it would be a, it would, it would be a different story. Uh, the Yankees didn't have a, a mental skills coach or, or mental whatever the proper phrasing is back in the day, but, the, but they have one now. They have a gentleman named Chad Bowling, and, and you, hear, you hear players reference to him about it. Hmm. He's a mental conditioning coach and, and works with them and, and, and does whatever he needs to do to help get them ready for the next game. And is that par for course in the league? Like does every single team have someone on staff like that now, you think? I would, I would have to think that – it is because I know I know Chad Bowling has been with the Yankees. I, I should know this, but it's it's definite. Put it this way: it, it precedes my time at Yes, and I've been at Yes for twelve years. Oh, so wow. Chad Chad Bowling has been with the Yankees for maybe upwards of fifteen years. So okay. I would have to think that other other teams have have added that type of person to their staff. It's it's fascinating. I just I, I won't name, if you know my Instagram, you'll kind of half know what I'm talking about, but. Just a few weeks ago, I hung out in a strange setting with some very famous ex-pro athletes. Um, you know, and even though, you know, sometimes I get access to this stuff, I am still highly intimidated by athletes and actors and, like, people who are in, like, this other side of media. <clears throat> Not media, but, uh, you know, entertainment, I guess. And the one thing I quickly noticed, you know, around half an hour with this one person was just this uh, feeling that it was like this person was screaming in isolation. Like the same I've seen certain singers and artists get into this zone where, 
you know, they get famous so young or they get attention so young uh, that, you know, your family, maybe your friend relationships start to crumble a little behind you. And the thing you have in front of you is a booking agent, a manager, uh, a staff of people who work for your band. Essentially, not one person who is legally allowed to challenge anything you say, (laughs) you know? And you get to this point where you meet people later in life. And honestly, my first reaction to it isn't, oh man, I want to be this person. My first reaction is sadness a lot. It seems like a very isolating place to be where after you spend 10, 20 years surrounded by nothing but sycophants, you kind of wind up in this lonely, weird bubble of a place. Um, I mean, have you seen that? And and how important is it for people to keep, you know, those old relationships that you had prior to keep those with you on the journey? There's so much pressure to succeed as a professional athlete or as you just mentioned, a professional entertainer. When you get to the the top and you get to the highest of levels, I do think there's an inclination to let people take care of the small stuff. If someone's going to do X, Y, and Z for you, why would you want to bother doing that? Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go back to something that Cohn told me when he retired. He said when, and and David Cohn, if, if you, if you've ever met him, ever listened to him on our broadcast, David Cohn is is highly intelligent guy. He mm-hmm. he cannot he's not just going to talk to you about pitching. He could talk to you about the financial market. He can talk to you about politics. He can talk to you about religion. He can talk to you about pop culture. This guy is is on everything. But when his career ended, Benny, he told me that he was lost because he was so used to being handed a sheet of paper or having a sheet of paper slipped under your hotel room door that said <laughs> right. luggage in the lobby by 11 a.m. Mm-hmm. First bus leaves at 1230 right. uh, game at whatever, four o'clock bus to the airport, 1030 uh, arrive at new city. He said everything was done for you. So right. first of all, you have to start being the one you want to make a dinner reservation. You make the call. You, you send the email. <laughs> right. And the other thing David said, and again, he's a smart Guy, so I, I have to just wonder about the people who didn't have his IQ level. He said he sat down and decided he was going to put together a resume and and send it out and get going. And then he realized he had nothing to put on the resume, and that was as, <laughs> right. as depressing. His resume was major league pitcher. Right now, I think David was selling himself a little short because he had he had worked with the players' union and he had done charitable work and. I mean, David Cohn could be a motivational speaker, but in his mind, there was nothing to put on that resume. So mm-hmm. I just compare him with the guy who who didn't have David's level of success or didn't have maybe as great a support group around him. That's got to be quite a fall when, when you realize that you don't have that that support system or what you thought was a support system mm-hmm. around you anymore. Or just someone simply like someone from your past who still has the ability to go, uh, no, dude, that's that's pretty fucking stupid. One hundred percent, and and we all need it. We all need that person. Sure, we all need that person or persons. Yeah, I'm from New Jersey. You can't you can't get rid of it. I have like seventy of them. You know, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> My we, humility we all... is not internal, Jack. It's been beaten <laughs> into me. <laughs> I, I I totally understand if someone reaches out to me and they 
happen to find me on Twitter or Instagram or they get my email address and they mention Jersey City, for me, it's kind of like I, uh, I, I stand at attention. Okay, this person might have known me when I was younger, might right. know my brother, might have known my parents. Yeah. What, what, what is this about? I better figure out what's going on here. Sure, sure. They know the inside. Well, speaking of which, I want to track back to Jersey City a little for you because this is a music podcast. I knew you know, we would have the potential to go off on some uh, different ways, but that's why it's called Going Off Track. But you are a massive music fan. It's why we've met. Um, I'd say beyond music fan. I mean, it's, it's, it's like your passion, uh, besides for sports and baseball. And what was, uh, what was music like? You know, we talked about, um, you know, how your house was as a kid. What was the relationship with, uh, music in the house? And, uh, did your parents play music? Like when did you discover music as something you, you can have for yourself? I attribute my passion for music to my father and my brother. My, my father was a guitarist and, oh, okay. and never did anything professionally, but did play around the house. And I do have some old cassette tapes of him playing. Oh, cool. He had, he had a great voice. I think in the afterlife, he would have loved to have been Hank Williams or Johnny Cash. That would have been his, uh, that would have been his choice. So your dad, your dad walked through, he had a guitar and wrote like country songs in the house? I wouldn't say he wrote songs, but he 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 did cover versions of songs, cool. and it was yeah. not often. And it was something that I wish he had done more. Sure, but there were definitely tapes of him having done that in his previous life. Wow, and he had talent. I always used to wonder why he didn't do more with it. Uh, I think once he had a family and started it getting out into the working world, it was something that he didn't do as often. Sure. But definitely he could have, I think at the very least, could have made some kind of living out of doing it. He had some talent. Uh-huh. And did my brother then was the second connection because having him be a couple years older than me and sharing the same bedroom, well, if my brother's listening to Elvis Costello, I'm listening to Elvis Costello. Right. If yeah. my, my brother's listening to the Ramones, I'm listening to the Ramones. Sure. And obviously being from Jersey, Springsteen was a big influence at, at that time in our lives. I mean, I think the first album I ever loved was uh, Darkness on the Edge of Town oh, by Springsteen. Nice. And I mean, I fell in love with The Clash. I, I saw The Clash when I was 16 or 17 years old a couple of times. And if anybody follows me on Twitter, I probably overdo The Clash references. And hmm. it just was a connection for me, Benny, that as much as I loved sports, and music was right there. I have no singing ability. I have no musical ability, but I, I think I have a pretty vast knowledge of music and, and I'll listen to any, any type of music. I mean, I went to see run DMC when I was in college. I, I, I enjoyed that. Although the concert got cut short because someone pulled out a gun. So that was that, always, a st- but that's, that's run DMC a- in Fordham at Fordham. Uh, I was at um, the beacon theater. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I think I was a junior, so it was either 85, 84, 85 in that in that range and I went with about 10 other guys from Fordham and the the concert was cut short by someone who decided to uh take their their weapon out at that point. Run the MC yeah. at the Beacon Theater. Wow. Yes. That's Freaking at the Beacon is what we called it. Um <laughs> but awesome. it's just I think it even in college I I interviewed Billy Idol in college. Oh, I, wow. I did some I did some concert reviews, I did some album reviews. I, I always had that as my sports was one, but but music is definitely one A. So you had that you had the 
the guitar in the house, your brother influencing you. And then you were, uh, I mean, a teenager going into the late 70s, early 80s around the New York City area. I mean, how much of the CBs, Studio 54, like how much of that, that, that scene were, were you able to tap into at that time? I went to CBGB's when I was of age. I'm trying to think of what year that would have been, 82, 83 or something like that. Mm -hmm. Definitely enjoyed seeing bands in and around the village, Benny, but I'm not going to lie to you and and act like that was something I was doing every weekend. Mm -hmm. I was also a pretty serious student at Fordham. And one of my greatest fears was, I I think I got this fear from my mom. I think she put this fear in me. I did not want to be the kid who went away to college, went away a whopping 45 minutes from Jersey City <laughs> to, the, to the Bronx. Right, right. And had to come home a semester later because you failed out or you flunked out or you sure. partied too much or you did something dumb. So I was, I was definitely keeping myself at Fordham a lot. And being from Jersey City, me and my buddies, we had been going to the city since we were probably 13 years old, just take the path train across. Yeah. So when all my Fordham buddies were, let's go to the city, I kind of felt like that was been there, done that. Right, but right. I, I definitely found my, my music connection uh, and and never never stopped wanting to seek out new music. Even to this day, I have a couple of friends and I'll mention something that I heard on Sirius XM and they'll say, how do you, how do you keep up with this stuff? How, how do you even know who that band is? I'm, I'm still listening to my ELO albums and I'll say, I'm just, I'm just a seeker, man. I'm just a yeah. seeker of, of new, of new stuff. Just hungry for new music. Yes. That's great. Well, here's some fun stuff. Okay. Mm-hmm. I want to know, and I think we've talked about this a little before, but it's so important to me. What is the best walk up music? you've ever heard someone use is there or, or is there any standout ones where you think about it and you're like wow great walk-up song i would have never thought of that oh, before man. that's a great question um oh wow i i wish i was uh i wish i was ready for this i i wish i had thought about this a little deeper <laughs> Sorry, this is I'm where gonna, i'm not a good journalist i know i know no no this, i'm going to i'm going to stall question. for time as i think about an answer by telling you this um the uh, the fact that Bernie Williams, who was uh, as musical as any player I've ever covered, yeah, still a musician, would, right? Would at times go to the plate to silence. To me, is oh. still a great story. And I asked Bernie about that, and he said, "I I don't want to be distracted. Yeah. I, I don't want to be distracted while I'm up there. I want to be able to uh, just focus on what I'm about to do." Wow, that's now, really interesting, actually. It is. It is. It is. Yeah. And that that stands out for me. I, I know it's not walk-up music, but one other thing. I remember when Andrew Miller was with the Yankees, and mm-hmm. when he would come in to warm up, he would uh, – and I'm a Johnny Cash fan. So he would play Johnny Cash's God's Gonna Cut You Down. Oh, great song. And Yeah, and I just thought that was so bold because yeah. it's – not only am I going to cut you down, but – God's going to cut you down here. Try, uh, try and hit my slider. <laughs> yeah. He's like, he's maybe he's, he's imagining the hitter as a long tooth liar, you know, or, or whatever the line is in that song. <laughs> and, and, and one more that stands out for me because I did a story on it. And so it obviously resonated. Chuck Knobloch in, in 2000 was kind of nearing the end with the Yankees. 
And he had had some back and forth with Steinbrenner. Yeah. He had had an elbow injury or something. Sure. And Steinbrenner, Steinbrenner had kind of called him out and said that he, why aren't you back sooner? We need you. So I remember Knobloch going to the plate to, to Eminem. Oh. And, and the huh. lyrics were, I am whatever you say I am. If I ah. wasn't, then why would you say I am? In the paper, the news, every day I am. Right, Radio right. won't even play my jam. So I went up to... I went up to Knobloch and I said, is there a message in that, that song? And he basically said, it's, you get fed up with stuff every once in a while. I'm not saying it, it's to one particular person, but that song for me speaks the truth. Huh. And what was funny about it, Benny, is if you know Eminem's music, they had, a, they had to really do some splicing to make sure they yeah. got the 30 seconds <laughs> right. or so clean that didn't 30 have seconds any, on that album. any expletives yeah. in it. Right. And I remember a couple of uh, New York writers because a lot of shit on so, that record that could get you canceled. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's so much competition in, in New York that if you have one crumb of news that nobody else has, I remember writing that story during the playoffs, maybe even the World Series. And a couple of New York writers, friends, competitors of mine said, I was totally blindsided by that. That's that's about as creative a story as anyone's going to write this postseason. Great job. And it was all because of my love for music. It was all because I was, wait a second, he's listening to Eminem now? Where, where did this come from? Right, so right. That, that, those stories kind of stand out for me a little. Yeah, yeah. You had a little uh, extra, extra knowledge because of it. That's funny. Yes. I love the Bernie thing. That's really interesting because I just had a conversation with my wife about that last week uh, where, you know, we bought these uh, Sonos speakers in the house, you know, the ones that can Bluetooth connect to your phone, some nice sounding speakers, which I'm not thrilled with because it's decreasing the record listening going on in my house, which I don't like. <laughs> but, you know, she'll, I'll, I'll be upstairs working or I'll be doing something. She'll just play some music, you know, often like reggae or dub reggae in the background just to have. And she doesn't even hear it. And I am immediately distracted where like, all I can do is listen to this music. I'm like, listening to the rhythms and checking out tones. And before I know it, I'm like nowhere near in my mind where I needed to be. And, and, uh, she was kind of making fun of me the other day. And I said that exact line that Bernie said, I was like, listen, like <laughs> I do this for a living. Like this doesn't play in my brain the same way it plays in yours. Like it's an all encompassing experience, you know? Um, so I feel Bernie on that. And I, that's such a unique perspective because he's, maybe the only musician uh, slash player uh, that I can really think of who is an actually like legit musician, you know, not a Nick Swisher style musician. Bernie's you know? right. Bernie's legit. Yeah. Bernie, I've seen him perform. I actually went to South America once on a, on a Goodwill tour that he took. He went oh, to cool. Colombia and Venezuela and it was part baseball and part music and Bernie could could mix between those two worlds so easily, but you as a musician would would understand that a lot better because I think the average person would think, for me, my walk-up song would be London Calling by The Clash, oh, right? So perfect. I'd be walking to the plate thinking, I'm fired up, I'm ready to go. I'm not thinking about Joe Strummer's lyrics or 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 when or when the howl is coming in right, or what the right. guitars are doing. Yeah. But you and Bernie, of course, that's what you guys would be thinking. And that would be distracting. So it, it's it's it totally makes sense. That's a good walk up song. That's good. 
Right, that's yeah. my. That's mine. I, yeah. I, we play uh, Benny, believe it or not, and we haven't done it in a while because of the pandemic. The Yankees and Red Sox are kind enough to let the New York and Boston media play a game a year at Yankee Stadium and at right? Fenway Park. It's fantastic. How I've long done has it that for, been going on? Oh my gosh! So I started. I was a Yankee beat writer since '91, and I've probably played in 30 of these games. Wow. But one year when they were taking it, they were really treating us like royalty. I think Susan Waldman sang the national anthem. Wow. They had they had our names on the scoreboard, <laughs> and they gave us uh, walk-up music, but they didn't ask you. They just pre-selected oh, it. Oh, okay. So they gave me Jumpin' Jack Flash, All which right. is great. A wonderful right. song. Sure. But I kind of stared up at the press box and say, this I, this is not what I would have picked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm offended. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Also, as we've been on this interview, I just got like four text messages that apparently Charlie Watts has passed away. Oh, wow. Speaking Uh, of which, yeah. Sorry. You know what? I just got a New York Times breaking news bulletin myself here. 80 years old. Anytime a drummer passes away, I get get hit up a lot. Oh, man. I think I've thought about this a lot for me. I was going to ask you your walk-up song. That's a perfect one. And What's yours? Do you have one? I've always thought... Now, of course, Enter Sandman lyrically is the perfect Metallica song to walk up to, you know, because of what they're actually saying and you're closing out the game. So I understand Mariano using that. It was perfect. But for me, the fact that I've never heard someone use Sad But True from the same Metallica record, that is the walk up song. Like I could be holding I'm thinking about that song right now and I'm moving my arms. I'm getting pumped up. I like that. I like that. And why do you think no one has ever latched onto that? That's a great point by you. I mean, I think it's, uh, we've talked about this a little in bass, but I just don't think there's a lot of like heavy metal fans playing baseball, you know? Wells, David Wells was probably the, the, the most metal fan I remember in all my years. Was of he covering. like proper metalhead, like Slayer kind of metalhead? I, I, I believe that he, I mean, he used to drive Joe Torre crazy with his pregame musical selection. So I'm, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> Good. All right. Even more respect for Boomer now. Good. <laughs> now, what about clubhouse music? Is that, is that still a, a major thing? And, and what's like the, you know, the pecking order of clubhouse music? Like who gets... Who gets to play it, and what what are you usually hearing? I, I think it's changed, Benny, in a way because obviously everyone has their own musical. You, you, you're walking around with your phone and your earbuds, so you could have your own music without having everyone else in the clubhouse mm. have to listen to your stuff, so right, to speak. Right. There used to be, and we haven't been in a major league clubhouse for two years now, there used to be, as I mentioned earlier, the starting pitcher – got to choose the music for that day. Okay. Some guys didn't care. Some guys would say to a clubby, yeah, put put whatever you want on. Wells wanted heavy metal music. I know in spring training with the Yankees in recent years, Aaron Judge was the, the clubhouse DJ, so to speak. And Ju- Judge would mix it up. I, I give him credit. There was, I, I feel terrible, but there was a someone in the Motown world had passed away. I, I forget who it was. I feel terrible that I can't think of the name, but he played music from that performer that day. Hmm. So Judge would mix it up. I I do recall one day, uh, pitchers and catchers, as you know, arrive first for spring training. Right. They're there for about the first week to ten days. 
And I forgot that Judge wasn't there. And every morning I was going into the Yankee clubhouse and they were playing this really soothing reggae sound and even a couple of reggae performers I hadn't heard of. And I finally figured out that Austin Romine, one of the backup catchers, had kind of taken over the DJ duties. And I went over and had a conversation with him. And I said, you got to keep this running, man. This is this is perfect Tuesday morning music to get your day going. And he right. said, well, as soon as Judge comes back, he said, I, I lose the controls. He's going to take over. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. All right. So how about this scenario? Hal, Hal walks up to you one day. He says, Jack, you know, you're our music guy. You're the Yankees music guy. I'm entrusting you with this. I want to curate a show here at Yankee Stadium, and you are the curator. Who are any five bands or artists, obviously have to be alive is the caveat, that you would have come play at your Yankee Stadium gig, the Jack Curry curated Yankee Stadium gig? Wow, I could have, I could pick anyone? Anyone. You have unlimited budget here. The Stein, Steinbrenners are opening up their pockets for your show. Well, what would happen, unfor- I, should, I should say fortunately or, or unfortunately, is you, you're going to get my playlist, which, which might not be everybody else's playlist. Wow. Who cares? I would, I, would try and, um, I would try and give people a, a nice mixture. I, I think right off the bat, I, I mentioned it earlier, Springsteen's a baseball fan. I actually saw a comment from him during the pandemic that he said the one thing he missed was not being able to go out to a ball game and eating a hot dog and having a beer. So I think I would absolutely have Springsteen there. I think I would bring Pearl Jam in. Mm -hmm. Eddie Vedder is also a baseball fan, Uh and they put on a a great show. Uh, I I love Dave Grohl's personality. I've never met him, but I just love what he's about. And if you look at his career and what he was able to do in two bands, I think that's pretty amazing. So I'd have the Foo Fighters there. I am a big reggae guy. I, I think I've I think I've told you that. Oh, yeah. I think we've talked about that. I've interviewed this gentleman, so I would I would definitely have Ziggy Marley there. Oh yes. And then I have and then I have one slot and and you know I'm I'm gonna go old school and, and I also wanna make sure that I don't want to say this, but I, I absolutely want to make sure I've got a female presence yes. there. But yes. we're bringing Blondie. We're bringing Debbie Harry yes. and Blondie out there. <laughs> That's it's funny you say that because I, I had the, <laughs> I was I was coming up with a list for you to come up with player comps, and I'm like shit. Yep. I got this is all dudes, all dicks on my list. What yes, is this exactly? And then my one caveat on my list was also Blondie. So <laughs> I think well, that, yeah, Benny. About a week ago, um, Cone and and Kay were talking about new wave music during the broadcast. Oh. It just happened to come up. Okay. Well, they were talking about Disco Demolition Night, and Cone said that ended Disco. New wave came in, and wouldn't you know it? About an inning later, the Yankees were making they were making a uh, pitching change, and in the, I'm not at the ballpark, but in the background, I can hear them playing "Hanging on the Telephone" by oh. Blondie. Okay. So I quickly texted Kay and said, "There's your new wave segue. Some Blondie in the background." <laughs> So Michael mentions it to Cone, and Cone says, yeah, I met her. I met her at a uh, Saturday Night Live after party. She was cool, man. She was still cool. <laughs> See, no matter how famous an athlete gets, you still meet Debbie Harry. It's still cool, exactly. right? I love 100%. That so we, you want to try and come up with some comps here? Player comps? Man, I've done this with, I know. Uh, I know. It's I've done tough. This with Paul O'Neill. Let's see. So 
Let's do a couple quick ones that I'm just curious about. Six yes. are the big ones. Let's do it. Who is the Joe Strummer of baseball? Wow. You know that that's right in my wheelhouse too. So I, I've got to get this right. So to me, it would be somebody who's who's not only great at what they do, but someone who you almost can't take your eyes off and has such a passion and an intensity about what they do. This just popped into my head, Benny, so I'm going with it. I'm going to go Max Scherzer. Oh, I like that. I, I I like his intensity. I like how passionate he is. I... I don't know what where he stands on on issues and stuff like no, that, no, but he's the guy who, who jumped into my head first and foremost. Okay, what about Jimmy Cliff? Who is the who is the baseball equivalent of Jimmy Cliff? <laughs> yeah, man, that's a tough one. So it's got to be somebody who's had a long career, long career, but you know, but maybe you know, kept things chill. You know what? I got it. I got it immediately, okay. and it's very timely. I'm going Miguel Cabrera. Oh. If you ever watch that guy play, he's 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 pulling – he's at first base. He's pulling the pocket out of the uniform of the base runner. He's uh-huh. he's enjoying himself. I'm going Miguel Cabrera. I love that. All right, and last one. What about Johnny Cash? Wow. So you're at the top of the mountain. You've had an endlessly – long career you stand out you wear black i should probably pick a pick a team of a guy who wears black johnny cash <laughs> who's the johnny cash actually it doesn't have to be a current player right no you know what i'm going to say benny and it maybe it's a little bit of a cop out but i just think of johnny cash and the endurance factor and the durability factor i, I would go cal ripkin jr oh i could see that actually yeah yeah that works the iron, I, I, iron I, I never horse really, of music I never really considered it the South, but whenever you go to Baltimore, they play John Denver. So thank God I'm a country boy. So uh, yeah, Baltimore is like a tweener. Yes, you know, to someone from New Jersey, it fucking feels like the South, doesn't it? You, when you ask <laughs> at, them, at times, when you yes. ask them, they'll say no. But but it, right. it certainly feels that way. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's great. Well, speaking of a little bit of the South, just to talk a little contemporary baseball. You know, I'm one of those people, you know, I'm over the Astros thing. I don't care. I almost hope in a way that they win clean in the next year or two so we can just, like, move on with this whole debate. But the one important question, you know I'm a stat guy, and I and I really, like, you know, study the compilation of statistics through baseball. I just love it, and it's fascinating. And to me, Jose Altuve is on a Hall of Fame track. He's only 31. He has a ring. By season's end, he'll have 1,800 hits, 900 runs, 260 steals, career almost 310 hitter. So if he has a few more Jose Altuve seasons, he's very much tracking for the Hall of Fame. Should Jose Altuve be in the Hall of Fame? I... I, I... I'm not going to dodge your question. I have a Hall of Fame vote, and here's what I think could potentially work in his favor. Because I agree with you. If we're able to ignore what the Astros did, and they admitted that they cheated, and some voters won't be able to ignore that, Mm -hmm. his numbers are obviously on a track to be Hall of Fame worthy. You're right. I I mean, I'm looking at it right now. 1,740 hits, and he's only 31 
the, the, the slash, the slash line 308, 364, 61. So over an 800 OPS. Here's what I think he has working for him, Benny. And that's time. Mm. He is going to play another seven or eight years. He's going to have to wait like everyone does five years after that before mm. his name's on the mm-hmm. ballot. So we're talking 13 years in the future. And as you just said, a lot can happen between now and then. If yeah. the Astros win even one World Series title between now and then, you could say, well, they did cheat in that year, but they came back and won in this year. Or they win two World Series titles. They did cheat in that year, but they came back and won in this year. However, uh, here's the other side of the coin. Mm-hmm. You need 75% of the voters to agree. Mm. And there are going to be some voters who, if Altuve gets 3,500 hits, they're still not going to vote for him. Right. Just like with Bonds and Clemens. That's right. And I am a voter who has decided not to vote for Bonds and Clemens. Okay. Statistically, they are absolutely Hall of Famers. But the suspicion of PED use, to me, is just too overwhelming to reward them with a Hall of Fame nod. Okay. I think, Benny, even with time, that there still may be some voters who will penalize the likes of Altuve for what happened with the Astros. Yeah, you're probably right. Just people. Because 70, imagine you're out with eight of your friends, a total of eight. Right. right. And you need six to agree on pizza toppings. You can't even get six out of eight to agree on pizza toppings. So when you start talking about. Hall of Fame, and and did you tarnish the Hall of Fame? And there are some people who say, hey, let let them, uh, how do you know who you steroid, I'm going back to the steroid argument, like I've had people say to me, well, you voted for Mike Piazza, or you voted for Jeff Bagwell, and I've always said, well, who is there, for instance, with with Clemens, it was Brian McNamee, who who is there, Brian McNamee? Mm. If they did a better job of concealing that person, okay, but to me, with Bonds and Clemens, it was too overwhelming. I wonder about the future with Altuve. And presumably, Benny, I will still have a vote at that point, and I can't tell you today how I will vote on Altuve. But I also will tell you this. I won't ignore what he was part of. What he was part of sure. will be part of my vote. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, now that you put it that way, the idea that I could take six out of eight of my baseball friends – and convince them to to get over it and not care. I mean, I'm sure I'm biased because I know a lot of Yankees fans. But, uh, yeah, I know a lot of people will say, no, fuck them. Fuck them forever, you know? There's going to be a lot yeah. of those. <laughs> and, and, his, and his resume, I mean, I'm looking at it as you and I are talking. I mean, he's got three. He's got the one MVP, but he's got five other times where he's received MVP votes. But, right, I, I – you you can't tell other people, even Hall of Fame voters, when it's time for them to stop thinking about the Astros situation. Because I think that your viewpoint clashes with what I've seen on Twitter. Yeah. I think a lot of people that the venom is still there, that the disappointment and and the hatred even is still there, that, that they did something that a lot of other people have a big problem with. Well, certainly amongst Yankees fans since we, no were, you know, yes. I think- <laughs> and that's where I see a lot of Twitter comments. Right now. Where does, where do you, does Carlos Beltran fall into that? Like, is he, you know, obviously he has hall of fame numbers too. Um, and he'll be up even sooner. Um, probably it's, next couple I, I of years. Right. I, right. And, and I agree with you. And I think, I think Beltran does have hall of fame numbers. I think it's, 
I think it's almost the same version of the answer that I just gave you. I, I think yeah. that there are going to be some people who who will hold that against him and will not even consider voting for him. But I think there will be some people who will say, hey, this guy hit over 400 home runs. He had over 1,500 runs batted in. He had an OPS of over 800. I know he's got a few uh, – he's got a bunch of all-stars in there. I know he's got some gold gloves. He had a Hall of Fame resume. Yeah. He had a Hall of Fame career. Is, is it enough to, to nudge him over the top? It's going to be the next, quote, steroid-type yes. vote. Yes. How, how will people land on that vote? Uh, and it's fascinating. It's fascinating because some people say it's just it's a museum and you have to put in the good and the bad. And then other people will say, well, it's a museum and it's a hallowed place and you can't put people in there who, who undermine the game. Yeah, the only thing I always think about, and I agree with that. I mean, I think sometimes it's too easy to get in these Hall of Fames and stuff. The one thing that I always consider after that is if we're gonna if we're gonna police it in that way, does that mean you have to police the people that are already in it? Um, and if that's the case, we could cancel a lot of motherfuckers that are in the Hall of Fame already. <laughs> oh, if we right, if we went back and retraced history, sure, yeah. you could absolutely do that. My, my counter to that is I didn't have a vote back then. Right. I, I, I wasn't. Vote. You didn't I vote for Ty Cobb. Yeah. Right. I, I didn't put that person in there. <laughs> right. So I, I'm not going to take the fall on that, but I'll give you my opinion on here are the guys that I vote for or don't vote for. Uh, Jack, do you have time for two more questions? Of course. Okay. So you mentioned it before. I never realized you played this great uh, media Boston versus New York game, which is really funny. Um but, you know, as a as a fan, to me, it felt like um, something died a little about the rivalry in 04, you know, especially in the, the following years. It was almost like, you know, two monoliths fighting each other rather than the underdog coming in. But it sort of feels like it's back a little. Um, in your eyes, how has that rivalry, you know, grown and changed over the years? And, and where does it sit today? It's kind of interesting that you say that, Benny, because first of all, I have the good fortune of the job that I do. I get to interview the players. So I I can interview the players on both sides of the rivalry and, and take a temperature that way. But here's how I'm going to answer your question. <laughs> I I look at the fans. Mm. I, I look at the, the excitement from the fans and, and the back and forth. And I do think after the Red Sox won, there was this – as there should have been, this unbelievable exhale. They right, finally right. got the World Series, and they conquered the mighty Yankees along the way. And there was just a a different personality about Red Sox fans. And then they win in 07, and they win in <laughs> right. 13. Yeah. And, of course, they're saying the Yankees fans can crow about 27 World Series, but Red Sox fans can crow about having more titles recently. I do think there is an edge back to it, and I, and I I adore that. I, I love yeah. the idea that there's an edge between these two teams again. And I sense some of that when the Red Sox were kind of beating up on the Yankees earlier this year, that it, that it bothered the heck out of the Yankees and Boone. And now you look at what the Yankees have done back to the Red Sox, and it feels like in the span of about a month, or I don't have, I don't have the timeline in front of me, but 
I mean, they just totally flipped. Yes. There was about a three-week period or three-and-a-half-week period where they made up 11 games on the Red Sox. So, And Boston I, I fans did, seem really, really surly about it. I mean, They do. I was texting yeah. with one yesterday, and he was telling me, that Red Sox were supposed to get Rizzo. The Red Sox didn't get any right, bullpen right. help. They've, mm-hmm. they've given this season away. And and that's where, by the way, you have to give Cashman a lot of credit. And I know Cashman gets a lot of grief from some Yankee fans who are ready to quit on this season in June. If you look at how he remade their roster, also getting the, the teams that he dealt with to pay for those contracts. Yeah, yeah. When they traded Talkman for Wandy Peralta, you would have thought that Mike Talkman was the second coming of Willie Mays. And if you look <laughs> at where they are right now, what Peralta has meant to the Yankees and the fact that the Giants ended up DFA yeah, Talkman. Playing, that's right. So to your point, yes, I, I think that the edge is back. I will say this, though, Benny, and this is not just me saying this. I, I talked to Tim Wakefield recently for a, a baseball project that I'm working on. Those those back and forths in the late 90s into the early 2000s, I don't know that that will ever be matched. No. I, I just saw that intensity and that back and forth and and the quality of play. And it, it, I, I am so grateful that I had the opportunity to cover that and I felt like there was a mutual respect between those teams, but I also felt like they they wanted to absolutely lay each other out if they could. Yeah, yeah. I do feel like it's back. I, feel, I mean, even this week's Bill Simmons podcast was let off on a 10-minute rant about how much he hates the Yankees and loves to watch them lose. And when he's that pissed off, <laughs> that means it's going well again, you know? He's, it's going well for yeah, the Yankees. Yeah, he's been sitting in his golden chair too long. I don't like it. Um <laughs> Now, what is that, you know, out of sheer curiosity, uh, do you remember your first meeting with George Steinbrenner? And was it remarkable? Um, And if it wasn't, what was some interesting or remarkable exchange you may have had with that guy? Wow. So I could tell you about my first meeting, but I actually think my first phone call was more interesting. Okay. I'm going to tell you about that. I when you're when you become the or became the Yankee beat writer back in those days, ninety ninety one, and obviously preceding that, eighty seventies. I was just a kid then, but you covered the Yankees, but you also had to cover George Steinbrenner. The, right. The story amongst the beat writers were you covered two beats: you covered the Yankees and you covered the owner. Mm. So as I was ascending to become the beat writer, I was trying to get George on the phone. And he was not returning any of my phone calls. I could still, to this day, give you that number. I used to call his ship building company in Tampa. It was 813-281-9 and then three more numbers because I don't know who has that number now. <laughs> right, right. And I would call every day and the secretary was always very nice and I would try and be so sweet and so polite. I would like to leave a message for Mr. Steinbrenner. This <laughs> right. is Jack Curry, the new beat writer for the New York Times. I did this for months until finally one day someone from the Yankees called me and said, George has been asking around about you and he got some positive reaction. You should be ready. He's going to call you soon. Huh. Said, okay. I'm still living at home with my parents. So he was vetted just, you first. Yes, wow. he did. I'm, I'm living in Jersey City with my parents. Uh, I was a couple of years before I got married. So... Benny, there's there's one phone in the house. There, <laughs> right. there, there's there's no cell phone. There's there's no other line. I'm I'm a New York Times reporter who uses the same phone that my mother <laughs> uses to call her her friends Betty and Willie and Rita. So that the phone rings one afternoon and it's around five o'clock or so. And 
George was always funny because he would start every call by, he would not even say hello. He would just say, this is George. Right. So right. that's what he said. Yeah, like, what can I and do I for said, you? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I said, oh, hi, Mr. Steinbrenner. Thank you so much for calling me. And he said, listen, I've asked around about you and I've been told you're trustworthy. <laughs> I'm calling you back now and I will return your phone calls in the future when I can, as long as you don't lie to me and you tell me the truth. Wow. He said, if you deceive me in any way, I am not returning your phone calls. I okay. said, George, I, I agree with that and I will play fair if you play fair. And he said, what do you got? So I started asking him questions and Benny, I don't remember the specific topics, but whatever he was telling me, I knew I had a story. And I was so excited at the idea of being able to call my editor and say, I got Steinbrenner. And he said this about that. And I think he was talking about some employees or coaches that he was upset with and moves they needed to make in the off season and how they needed to get better. So we're 20, 25 minutes into the call. And then all of a sudden you hear someone pick up an extension of the phone and say, female voice, doesn't everyone know there's a dinner hour around here? <laughs> and the phone clicks. And George says, who was that? What was that? What did she say? Now, remember, he said to me, don't ever lie to me. Right. So I said, uh, George, um, that was my mom, and she wants me to come and have dinner. And I was, I was waiting for him to explode on me. And he said, she's right. It's dinner hour. Family time is important. You should be with your family. Why that's are you talking it. to me? That's it. I said, George, George, I, I want to finish the interview. And he said, no, no, no. Yeah. You should really go have dinner with your family Chief and we'll right. talk another time. Chief is right. Yeah. <laughs> so I, he hung up the phone and I don't think I ever had the temerity to scream at my mother in my no, life. But I went out and I said, what did you do? Yeah. Did you realize what you just did? <laughs> and she said, I told you dinner was at 530 or whatever time it was. And she said, I was just letting you know that. And I said, Mom, I can't believe you just did that. But Benny, what I subsequently found out was, I don't know, I was 25 years old or something at that point. No matter how much older I got or how much I might have ticked George off over the years was something that I wrote. His image of me was always the kid right. sitting at home with his mom and dad getting ready to have dinner. Sure. And I think in a strange way, my mother did me a favor that that yeah. image was always in George's head. Huh. Like kind of maybe brought you down a peg for him. Yes. And yes. Made, made you easy. Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. Cause I feel like your mom, like he kind of heard what your mom said and it touched some old school part of him. That's like, Oh, okay. I like what's going on over there, you know? Yes. I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I've told that story at a couple of dinners. I've told that story on the Yes Network and it always gets the same kind of reaction that yeah. I got from you. And uh, yeah, my, my mom stood up to George Steinbrenner and, and she won that day. <laughs> sure did. Uh, all hail the chief. I love exactly. that. It's so good. All right. So my last thing is like, you know, through the years I've noticed baseball especially over, you know, the other major American sports kind of attracts like nerds, deep thinkers, musicians, like people who are sort of adjacent to sports, but really adopt baseball for whatever reason. And, you know, there's obviously a, you know, history and a romanticism to it, but to you, what is it that makes baseball so different from those other ones? And, and makes people so so passionate about sometimes singularly just that. I go back to the beginning for me, Benny, and I guess it's a combination of what a lot of what you just said. First of all, the, the numbers always matter. The, the charm of the game matters. But I think about growing up 
with my friends on Bleecker Street in Jersey City and playing wiffle ball or stick ball. And I was the kind of kid who we couldn't just have a game of me and my two friends against our other three friends. I had to pick a lineup. Who do you want to be? <laughs> okay, you're going to be the Cincinnati Reds? Okay, well, so you're Pete Rose leading off. Right, right. And so there was that just that instant connection with with who these players were, with the way that they played, with imitating their stances. And I guess it's like when anyone falls in love with anything else. The first time you picked up drumsticks and started pounding away and said, this is unlike any other feeling I've ever had. That's what baseball brought to me. And I've had people say, oh, the game's too slow. It never, it never really grabbed me. And that's fine. And, and that's the way you felt. That's the way you feel. But for me, it, it was that. It was, and I'm going to date myself here, <laughs> you couldn't get the batting averages back in the day. You right. had to get the Sunday newspaper That's right. and look at the leaders. And if I followed a player and he happened to creep into the top 10 yes. of batting leaders for that week, that, that made my week. It's very oh, so exciting. And, yeah. Right. So-and-so uh-huh. is hitting two. It's, it's a... It's a bad offensive year. So-and-so is hitting 298, but it's 13th in the league. So the numbers matter. The way the game is played matters. The fact that it involved family for me mattered because, as I said before, our family loved baseball. And even to this day, my wife, I'm so so blessed that I have a wife who – she loves baseball. It's terrific that – I mean, she could tell me, she could tell you the difference between a slider and a cutter. And there, there are not a lot of wives who can do that. So definitely not very much. I very much appreciate (laughs) that, but it's a rambling answer. But for me, it's all of those things. Yeah. No, that's great. I love that. Oh man, I'm jealous. My wife hates sports, but baseball is the only (laughs) one I can get her to because it's outside. You know, cold beer in the hot sun, I can sell her on that, you know? They, uh, that's right. Bring the boys and, <laughs> yeah. and enjoy a day at the, the ballpark. The actual sports, I can't get her to pay attention to. <laughs> at least get some garlic cheese fries in her and we're all good, you know? <laughs> that's awesome. By the way, can you put in a call for me? Because there's only like two places in the stadium that you can get garlic cheese fries, which are the best. I'll see what I can do. I mean, the, that, I'll, I'll, let me work on that concert yeah. of those five artists that you talked about first. I got to get Springsteen, Pearl Jam, yeah. Foo Fighters, Ziggy, and Blondie. But after that, I'll work on the garlic Get fries. the gig together and tell them to get their <laughs> Kanish situation sorted, and, and we'll be good. I love it. Well, that was a lot of fun, Jack. Thank you. Benny, it was a blast to talk to you. Uh, our, our, wow. our friendship started via Twitter, <laughs> that's so right. that's actually one positive about Twitter. Yeah, I'm going to talk about all the funny way we met in the intro for sure. I, I love it, and yeah. I always enjoy our conversations. And Me I, too. I look forward to uh, seeing you face to face some somewhere soon. We're we're getting closer. We all know that, but uh, well, I'll see you this evening. Absolutely, I'll be there. I didn't bring it up in the interview because uh, I forgot. But when we were booking this, um, Jack was telling me, oh, like, you know, this Saturday I'm going to be interviewing Derek Jeter. I'm like, oh, of course, you know. <laughs> um, and I asked the off-color question. I'm like, come on, you know, let's, let's, get, let's get behind the curtain here. What does Derek Jeter smell like? <laughs> when you're up close in person and he's not playing ball, you know, like in street clothes. And all I get back is all in capitals, dreamy. Yes. Thank you, Jack. Thank you. And I can imagine it, you know, like, sure. 
That guy, I imagine the products that he has access to. I'm sure he takes care of himself in his, uh, you know, off the field. <laughs> he definitely uses Sex Panther. I mean, there are <laughs> there are notoriously like, like it's one of those things. You know how? I know it's a weird example, but you know how like Jeff Buckley died in such a sort of mundane way that yeah. people come up with like these amazing narratives yeah. about what actually happened because the real story just, just isn't interesting enough. Right. I yeah. feel like Jeter is kind of like that. Cause he, you know, as an outsider, I heard these like crazy stories. Like you can't get into Jeter's apartment without signing an NDA. <laughs> when you leave, you get a gift basket of his own merch, like, <laughs> like all this like crazy stuff. But in reality, you never knew about it. You know, he had some like uh, famous flings with like famous people, but he was so good at mm. keeping his private life out of the uh, public eye that I think people did the same thing. They came up with these narratives. So I just imagine Jeter smelling dreamy, <laughs> wearing like nothing but silk. Maybe, I, I don't know. It sounds like I got a thing for Derek Jeter, actually, it now that I'm playing it out. Yeah. Sounds a little uh, sounds a little suspect. I wouldn't be the only one, Brad. No, absolutely not. You know? He's a, he's a good-looking man and quite skilled. That's it. That's it. <laughs> but that was a fun interview with Jack. I really appreciated his insight into so much. That great uh, story about Steinbrenner and his, his mom, the chief. It was a fucking badass. Um, yeah, it was, it was it was everything I was hoping for going into this interview. And I hope I hope the people found it illuminating. There's a chance right now, Brad, that there are diehard Yankees fans listening to Going Off Track. Ooh. Hello. Welcome. Got, got anything to say to them? <laughs> uh, if you come back again, I promise that Benny will talk more sports, even if it's a music guest. I mean, I yeah, I probably will. <laughs> I probably will. But at this point, like I was saying before, there's something fascinating about all of it, isn't there? Uh, all of it? You mean like all of life? Well, yeah, that is fascinating <laughs> anyway. But just the, uh, I don't know, I do, f these parallels are really similar and I'm starting to see them more and more between like great oh, musicians right. and great athletes. And, you know, I think we're just running into those universal themes of what makes like really successful people successful, you know? Um, and they have that little extra, that thing that makes them either fucking weird or hard to be around or obsessive or, or something that just like that little extra, you know? Well, we were, t I mean, it's funny. I was just having a similar conversation with my kids yesterday because I've always tried to impress upon them that like the most famous people that they know have always work their ass off. It's not enough to be born talented. It's like they were talking about um Usain Bolt, right? And like oh, yeah. and I said, you may find this hard to believe, but I promise you that there have been athletes born who were born with greater skills than he was. And he yeah. just happened to be the guy who couldn't stop training and who was so driven that you know i mean and we all have met you know like i you know we all know these lost musicians scattered around the country who are like the greatest guitar player in the world who just never you know 
never didn't have the drive to make it. Um, That's right. They're all over the place. Oh yeah. So yeah, it is, it is, it is, it's the same in music, you know, and it's the same in it with athletes. It's like, you can't just be born with the skills. You also have to work your ass off. And, and unfortunately you, you still probably have to be a little bit lucky too. Yeah. Yeah. That's where a scenario comes in. Like I even heard someone talking the other day about how, you know, there are 450 players in the NBA, let's say. That doesn't necessarily mean those are the 450 best basketball players on the planet for yeah. a variety of reasons. <laughs> right. Like, that does not necessarily mean that, you know? Right. And I think people do come up with that misconception. Um, in music, I mean, fuck, like that talent and that vision are the things that can stop you from being really successful. True. Um, you know, because the people who start the genres aren't usually the ones who get any credit for it. You know? Never, ever. So, <laughs> the pioneers don't get paid. <laughs> yeah. So what am I pioneering? Why am I not getting paid? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Let's not get into that. Um, <laughs> if you right, want so to uh, check in with Jack Curry, his all of his socials are Jack Curry, Y-E-S, Instagram, Twitter. Um, I would advise you to do that if you enjoyed this at all. Because, you know, as you can hear, he's a clever guy and he's got a lot to say. Um, follow us, uh, Going Off Track, where you get your social media. And if you want to become a patron, that's patreon.com slash going off track. And we do a weekly, uh, among other things, we do a weekly uh, fireside chat via Discord. It's been fun. Patrons. Yeah. It's been a fun chat. It gets deep. It gets deep. That's a weekly Does. thing. Let's every week let's lay Neil on the couch, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and you can always leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else that you can possibly leave a review. You can um give us a tip on Venmo at off track. And uh what else, Benny? What's going on with you, man? When are we gonna yeah. hear some of this music? That sounds like all the swag we need. The Mercy Union songs are are heading down to Nashville to get mixed. So, uh, yeah, you'll be hearing it pretty soon. Woo! All right. (laughs) Well, everybody love everybody. Have a great week, and we'll see you soon.